welcome to the uh, Pink Smoke uh, podcast. I almost said the Pure Cinema podcast. I would be incorrect. Wow. <laughs> we wish we were the Pure Cinema podcast, but we are the Pink Smoke podcast. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Chris Funderberg. Hi. And uh, today we're um, not going to be talking about movies. We're actually going to be... Um, making things smaller gonna lower it down to the tv set we're gonna be talking about one of the most iconic tv shows of the 90s one of the most popular and beloved shows of that era herman's head oh that's a lie that's a lie we're not going to be talking that we're going to save that one for save the jokes (laughs) for the keeper i know i can't i can't match i mean but 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 it is horror related as william ragsdale charlie brewster from fright night was the star of herman said so i'm keeping everything relevant because it's october obviously we're going to talk about move on we're going to be talking about tales from the crypt this season it's tales from the crypt Just to bear the lead, we are going to be discussing Tales from the Crypt, uh, the HBO show that ran from 1989 to 1996 and had a cartoon, a radio series, a game show, a Christmas album, novelty items, all kinds of stuff. And who better to talk about Tales from the Crypt than a card-carrying cryptologist, freelance writer Stephanie Crawford. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I had no idea I had credentials like that. Uh, my card hasn't come in yet. Oh, boy. Well, for those who don't know, Stephanie writes a series called Exhuming Tales from the Crypt for Dread Central, uh, where uh, she goes, not not only does she do reviews of the specific episodes, but she gives lots of great behind-the-scenes knowledge, including uh, links to Bruce Boxletter's hair-building product commercial, which... <laughs> Always surprising to see things like that popping up. Uh, but Stephanie, let me ask you: What was your first experience with uh, this show? Did you did you watch it when it was originally on? Did you catch up with it later? What was your personal experience? First, can I just say really quickly, thank you so much for watching that commercial. <laughs> I remember just catching it randomly on TV years ago and just being so delighted by it. And I thought one day this is going to come in handy. I just know it. I'm going to have a place to use this commercial. Thank you for bringing it back. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, apparently. I think, I think hair building is, you know, definitely fallen by the wayside in today's society, and they definitely <laughs> be inspired well, to bring it <laughs> And I used to work in a salon where we sold that kind of thing, actually, but that's a different story. Um, I was a little too young to have watched it originally, so I caught it on reruns when I was still a child, but an older child. And horror was completely verboten in my home. It was a pretty religious home. We, no violence or sex or anything on the TV. So I would do that classic thing of waiting until my parents fell asleep and I'd sneak down and have to get my face really close and have it really low down. So it was a very intimate experience, but I was already obsessed with the idea of horror. And that it was one of my first introductions. This is the perfect show for people at a non-horror house, I think. You know, it couldn't be more unabashedly sleazy and the humor couldn't be darker. It couldn't be gorier for something that's on TV. 
I, I think that's like a perfect way to find the show, honestly. And it's probably the same way I think kids in, growing up in the 50s and 60s probably had the comics, the EC comics that the show, uh, you know, uh, adapted in, under their, you know, beds or hidden in the closet and whatnot. So I think kind of the spirit of that comes in this show and that's just the perfect way to, to watch it. John, can I, can I step in and say something real quick? First off, I want to, we wanted to have Stephanie on the show with you because you also write uh, Tales from the Crypt recaps, series recaps for our site. So it felt like a natural thing to have you on there. You guys both know a lot about this show, have watched a lot of it. I am basically uh, a novice in comparison. I haven't seen every single episode. I haven't seen a single episode from the uh, seventh season, which would have been beyond my time. So I'm just going to play the role of, I'm going to interject and ask you guys questions as this goes on. And one of the things I wanted to ask both of you up front was who, you said this was like, John, this was perfect for uh, a horror novice household. When I watch the show now as an adult, sort of trying to catch up with things I haven't seen in it, who was the audience for this show? Was this a show that was popular with horror fans or like what age group, what kind of person was into it? And if you guys have theories or ideas about that, Stephanie? Oh, uh, I'm on the spot, okay. Oh, well, Well. you know, there's no (laughs) wrong answers here. Um, I wasn't um, aware of the show when it was first airing, but it, it did seem to appeal to people um probably wider than a lot of people expected um i think it was kind of exciting that um they had a lot of big names a lot of huge producers and directors and that kind of intrigued people uh to see what probably on the surface seemed a puppet on a horror show really but then you hear like Richard Donner is on it and that probably got a few people who were paying for HBO back then to check it out and uh, I right now I'm writing about season three and they premiered Gremlins 2 right before they did their they would begin each season with the first three episodes on the same night so they did like the world TV premiere of Gremlins 2 and then they followed with all that. So I think they were really smart about structuring is like, oh, come on, adults have a little fun, you know? It's, remember what it's like to be scared as a kid. And they also had a lot of um, actors like Michael J. Fox and Arnold Schwarzenegger direct episodes. There's something kind of... Um, gimmicky about that or not everything's gimmicky about this show is that fair to say in a non-insulting way <laughs> but that you know of having you know michael j fox and arnold Schwarzenegger are obviously not associated with the horror genre either it seemed to be casting a strange net outside of you know horror fans to me well one of the things i find really intriguing about the show and i haven't done like the the big research on this either in terms of the origins and everything like that but just the idea that it's all these big hollywood hotshots getting together to create this thing and then bringing all their actor friends on board obviously it's sort of a lucas spielberg thing where they're taking something that they loved as kids and 
retooling it for like to, to become something completely new, like, you know, when they're all adults and when, you know, for a new generation. But it's interesting to see these, you know, be- be- long before, you know, everyone's talking about television being cinematic and, uh, and the anthology shows before it were kind of fading away, you know, Amazing Tales or Tales from the Dark Side, I think were already done by this time, by the time it came out. Them kind of coming into this new medium and, you know, bringing their, you know, their, their big shot mentality to something that's, at least I think to a lot of people so small a little horror anthology you, show ben, with, with is that what you were going to say John you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> why dance around it that William Friedkin shouldn't be directing <laughs> HBO horror anthology shows well I think that they definitely <laughs> I, I think that Walt, uh, just for the record, it's Richard Donner, it's Robert Zemeckis, Walter Hill, uh, David Geiler, and Jill Silver coming together and, and saying, you know, we want to make something out of what people, you know, threw away back in the 50s and 60s, stuff that was considered junk and, and went to court for being amoral and, and whatnot and giving it a new spin, you know, coming off the end of the 90s, <laughs> coming off the end of the 80s, which again, you know, I'm not a, uh, not going to go into like the social history or anything, but definitely a time where it's like people wanted to see horrible greedy people disemboweled you know and like just like like run through this horrible ringer uh in an ironic sense that you know they they're getting their comeuppance at the end of it which is kind of the 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 structure of most of these shows most of the comics that they're based on was the ironic punishment for the horrible person or a person getting in over their head in a situation that they don't understand when they think that they're that they're that they, they're the big shots and they're the ones who are you know above going into a, a small town where it turns out that the yokels are, are are more knowledgeable than they would have considered. Don't want to get too far into it. But let's let's talk about some episodes that that we like. Stephanie, let me ask you, what is uh, we're going we're going to break that's down what we're going to do now. We're going to go straight episodes. to your guys' top just to fives. We're just going straight to the top fives. Unless Stephanie wanted to add anything about the show. <laughs> I wanted to ask before you go into the top fives, because I think to, to contextualize it, what, like, Stephanie, what do you think, like, the key elements of a good Tales from the Crypt episode are? Is there, like, a, a platonic ideal of what a Tales from the Crypt episode is to you? To put you on the spot, again, repeatedly. Damn it, okay. That is an interesting question, because... When I look over the episodes, my favorite ones are either super traditional horror, like there might even be a haunted house involved, and the ones that pull off being goofy really well. I I tend to love them in equal measure. So I, I don't know. A few of them, it doesn't feel like they're buying into the premise. And, you know, I could say like, well, the morality tale needs to pay off and you I could say a lot of things, but I really just want to feel like whoever's making that particular episode is sincerely buying into whatever crap they're laying down. If they're trying to be funny, I want them to completely go for it. And um, if a skeleton is going to fly out at someone, I want to be like beautifully photographed and lit perfectly. I just, I want to feel that heart. It, does it feel like they kind of take that William Castle mentality of the the skeleton that jumps out or the haunted house and and kind of arted it up for the HBO audience? I don't know, because at that point, it just really wasn't even close to being hip. Um, we, we just 
don't have the same kind of home video landscape as we did. Um, I think the nostalgia for wasn't quite as strong. It was definitely there, um, but I don't think it was romanticized or even studied quite as much a, as it has been at this point. Um, so I think you're going to have those tropes no matter what you do, but I think most of the filmmakers who came in, it seemed like they're like, no, forget that. I, I, I have my flourishes. I have my tricks. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to bring a new twist to this. It's going to be cool. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, which is part of the fun for me. It's interesting that you said, you mentioned the goofy ones. For me, when I think about Tales from the Crypt, I don't think of it uh, necessarily as like hard horror. I think that the sense of humor is a really big part of it. That to me, any of the episodes I think of as being really classic have some measure of humor to them, even when uh, they buy in, as you say, even when they're sort of all in, that there's still a, a sort of heightened sensibility uh, to it. That it is, you know, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that this comic book series has a comic book quality to it. That's my amazing booking insight I have for you guys right now. But, um... <laughs> But yeah, but I, I, I'm curious to hear what your guys' lists are of your favorite shows and see how many of them I remember. For me, I didn't watch this show when it was on. I saw the like uh, edited for syndication packages that showed on Fox in like, I think it was like the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience of them. I used to, they would come on at like 1230 at night after like Saturday Night Live was over sort of time frame. And I would record them off of TV. And it wasn't every episode, which I was surprised to learn later on. So, uh, you know, then when I went back as an adult, I sort of tried to fill in the blanks. But I'm, I'm curious if your favorites line up with what the people who made the show thought of as the best to send to syndication to. Would you like to, uh, to, uh, to jump right in and give us your... Uh, your first in your top five. These don't need to be in order unless you have them in order. John. Oh, Stephanie, please take do the <laughs> honors. I'd love to hear your first one. Okay. Um, John, if you I disagree with her selection, groan loudly the moment she says it. <laughs> I can take booze. Don't hold back, please. I'm no sensitive, but I won't take it out on you. <laughs> I don't cry out loud. No, I'll, whatever he does, I'll take the opposite tact to keep you even healed. So he boos, I'll be like, no, that's a great choice. That's a really interesting choice. And then if <laughs> that's he's a like, good dynamic. And if he says good choice, I'll go, uh, what? No, nothing. <laughs> okay. Let's hear it, Stephanie. Suspense is killing me. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> Can you say that like the Crypt Keeper? I tr you know, I tried doing a Crypt Keeper impression earlier just to see if I could do it, and it was <laughs> probably the worst impression I've ever attempted in my life. <laughs> I don't even know what I sounded like. No, it's, it's really hard to do. It's kind of like a Marge Simpson thing. It is. I, I really respect John Kissier. That's how you say his name. He's a phenomenal voice. This if you're waiting that? for me to do it, I'm not going to do it. Stuff. <laughs> what do you okay. got? What's your number one? Okay. Um, I'm not Tribe doing this in price. order. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I'll start with Showdown, which is from season four. It's directed by Richard Donner and written by Frank Darenbaugh. So we have some of our huge names. And um, 
like you, Christopher, that's where I saw the reruns was the syndicated Fox shows. So I'm pretty sure this one was in heavy rotation because a lot of my favorites today I remember watching as a kid. But this is, um, it seems like a very classic Old West um, story about a gunslinger and he's kind of a Billy the Kid tragic figure. Um, I, are we going to reveal the endings on here? Any I, yeah, I think I, it's... I, yeah. <laughs> this is the official spoiler alert. I feel like, yes, they're, they're old. For a 33-year-old show, we can go ahead and do spoilers. <laughs> yeah. That's great. In my column, I'm like, I'm not going to spoil any of the endings. People appreciate that. Also, how many episodes can you actually describe where if you hear it, you can't guess the ending? Would be my question too. Like this, this is a show that I feel Not like many. is spoiler resistant. You know, like you know where it's headed ninety five percent of the time. You guys are breaking my heart. Okay. Why? No, that's a good. <laughs> I think that's a testament to quality art is that you can know all of the plot and still have it be just as effective. No, I feel that way too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we have a gunslinger. It's the old West. Um, there's kind of a melancholy feeling to it. I really enjoy. And we find out that he's surrounded by ghosts and he has been resisting his fate. And in, might be my favorite reveal of the show actually my favorite twist is having almost like a back to the future part three kind of cowboy outfit tour guide come into the saloon he's in and be like well this is where he was murdered everybody take your pictures and he's just sitting there horrified <laughs> like finally putting together everything uh that actually happened and just explains all the strangeness that's been going on. I just, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the Southwest, so I'm a little partial to that, that kind of thing anyway, like carrying death. I just like the desert landscape thing, but just, I, I don't know. It, it's so simple. It's almost poetic to me. It's, and then he kind of grimly accepts that he has been dead and he kind of goes through the motions of accepting his fate. And it's just so well done. And throughout the episode, he's meeting the ghost of the men who he's killed right throughout. Right. Right. Yeah. And the, it's, it's very cool. It's a very low key episode. And one, I think that was one of the three episodes that was originally created to be a spinoff series, right. Called two fisted tales that uh, Donner, I think, and, and Zemeckis were trying to get together that did ultimately didn't happen. Because uh, a lot of the episodes were not based specifically on Tales from the Crypt episodes. Like it was probably, they were based on Haunt of Fear and Vault of Horror and Crime Suspense Story. Exactly, yeah. Crypt, right? Exactly, but it did fit really, it does fit really well into the, the crypt verse for those reasons that you mentioned, I think, because of the sparseness and because it's more of like a character study, you know, that uh, really focuses on just the one guy in this one location. Uh, but I think uh, definitely, I think getting Darabont, you know, to write it was a huge thing because even before he was the Shawshank Redemption guy or the Walking Dead guy, he was churning out great scripts for the Blob remake and stuff like the Nightmare on Elm Street three and all the other things that he'd worked on. So he was like a real horror guy at the time. So even if they didn't imagine this being part of their horror show, it was going to be part of their, you know, 
genre show <laughs> slightly outside of horror that you couldn't get a bigger guy than that to do the script and it um, i have the episode guide here in front of me it originally aired on my 13th birthday I I did know that actually. It might surprise you. It's the fact I knew. He actually told me to pick that episode for that reason. It's going to be really special, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, this is perfect. Let's just end the episode here. Happy birthday, Chris. See you later, everybody. John, what First is your five? What is your first, What is your pick? I should mention that I had the same experience as you guys. I watched the Fox syndicated. We do. We were not an HBO household. We were a Showtime household. Yeah, Boom. I didn't have cable TV until <laughs> after college. So it was all, Cinemax. So. so it was all Fox syndication for me too. So I missed a lot of the episodes. I only saw some of the really famous ones. So when I started rewatching them from the beginning. Uh, I took in all of season one and there are some great episodes. It's a short season. It's only about six or seven episodes. Um, There's some really good ones, but the highlight is the very last one of season one. It's called Collection Completed. Oh, yes. And it's a fantastically nasty tale about a man who played by M. Emmett Walsh who retires um, or is forced into retirement. I think he doesn't want to retire, but he comes, he comes home and realizes he has to spend every day with his wife who's played by Mrs. Roper from three's company. And in the meantime, while he's been gone, he doesn't realize she's developed a very intimate relationship with all these pets that she's accumulated. And the house has basically become this mini zoo and her regular life, like her regular formula for dealing with, uh, with life is, this relationship with these animals and that's like her accepted existence these days she doesn't have time for him she's just doing the thing that she's been doing so he's been completely phased out and so he becomes jealous of these little dogs and you know lizards and birds and all these other things and so right away you've got this kind of ridiculous scenario that is just hilarious you know where it's mm walsh fuming up because the dog's getting a birthday cake instead of him, you know? Um, it's such a funny episode. And then at the end turns into like this really horrible, nasty thing, but it's very like, very grounded in like what married relationships can be, you know, where it's, where it's like when one person detaches from the other and starts their own existence, you can't reconnect in a way that's meaningful. So I just find this episode to be, very personally Inside meaningful for you, John. Personally meaningful? No, not at all. <laughs> um, and it's great. It's directed by Mary Lambert. It's one of the few episodes directed by a female director. And of course, she made Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. Um, probably more famous, I think, for doing the Janet Jackson videos, Nasty in Control, or the Madonna videos, uh, Material Girl and Like a Prayer. Uh, although some people might know her work doing Mega Python versus Gatoroid. I don't know. Um, I don't know what her legacy will be, but uh, I wish she had done more episodes because this is a phenomenally made episode um, that I just think is great. You like that one, Chris? Uh, I do. I do. That was not one that I saw until I was, I was older, but that's, that's a good one. Is this one you're, you're a fan of, Stephanie, or does it not meet your exacting criteria for a great tales from the crypt <laughs> this this one falls firmly in it yeah it's all right for me just a, this I'm was sorry. just okay that's all right <laughs> no there's, there's a lot i love about it conflict here between you two 
<laughs> well, listen, pal, I appreciate its cheerfulness. I, I, I think it's a funny dynamic. I think it's a, kind of a cute play on the whole sitcom landscape, especially with the neighbor. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, that final makeup, I just laugh every time. <laughs> I think that's okay. I think it's a funny episode. <laughs> I know, but it's a weird laugh. It's an uncomfortable <laughs> laugh. It's a laugh I don't know what to do with. So do you, so is it the horror purist? Wait, isn't in that you what that's feeling for Tales from the Crypt? The uncomfortable <laughs> laugh that you don't know what to do with? Isn't that like the ultimate crypt compliment? <laughs> crypt lament? <laughs> Wait, why haven't you been talking like this the entire time? That was great. <laughs> this is my new putting it on. I have no, because I can't come up with any crypt, enough crypt keeper puns. I can't. It's, a, it's a lot harder than it looks. It is. The only one I can ever do when I'm trying to write fake crypt keeper intros is at the scareport, enjoy the fright. And I feel like that must be an actual intro to an episode somewhere. But Give us one of your favorite Crypt Keeper puns, Stephanie. Oh, no, don't put me on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> this episode is getting retitled, We Put Stephanie Crawford on the Spot. That is what this episode oh, geez. is She'd actually. You think I would have been prepared, prepared, but... Welcome to the On the Spot cast. We're coming at you. <laughs> she thought we were going to be talking about Tales of the Unexpected, the Roald Dahl anthology show. <laughs> I think I have those books. Can we do that? <laughs> I have all these adult short stories. Be a good follow-up. I do too. <laughs> so we can um, talk about whatever you want. You just take, you take <laughs> we're tired of putting you on the spot. You just steer this episode you? where you want it to go. Um, I'm, not, I'm not. Which is straight into not. your number two top five pick. Isn't this amazing? What do you have next for us, Stephanie? Mm, me. Okay. How about one that scared me the most as a kid and that would be the new arrival yes love that one is it on your list though it is but i've got some backup so it's okay okay Phew. It I'm glad i said it first <laughs> you beat me to it so david warner and twiggy uh, they and Joan a, Severance and Joan Severance. Yes. <laughs> Just remembering that once you said Joan Severance and Twiggy, I'm like, oh wait, I know this one. <laughs> um, it's basically an episode of Frasier, but people die. <laughs> no, so David Warner is a psychologist, a radio host. So I'm not completely off base here. And he's a terrible person because he's in Tales from the Crypt. And they find out pretty much while he's on air, and I don't know why they let him hear this, but that the show's going to get canceled. <laughs> so while he's on the phone with a frequent caller, who is Zelda Rubenstein, um, she has issues with her uh, daughter, She's really out of control, and she starts self-harming by bashing her head into the wall. Uh, he decides on the spot that, you know what, we're going to do an on-location show, and we're basically going to let the viewers hear how messed up you are and how brilliant I am, and they'll, they'll save the show. So they all go on location, 
to the spooky house that it's like electrified and spooky and we're given hints that Zelda Rubenstein still thinks her husband is off in World War II and she's you know not the most uh, mentally sound person herself um, and as a kid I, I wasn't familiar with anything going on in this episode so when they revealed that um well, basically, the concept of people not being who they seem to be at first blew my mind and was instantly terrifying to me. So we see the quote-unquote daughter running around who they're starting to suspect um, Zelda is playing herself um, in kind of a eyes without a face mask and an old-fashioned dress. And I had nightmares about that for so long. Um Sorry, I'm 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 literally regressing to my childhood fear state right now. Thinking about this episode, it's just so well done. It, it's so unsettling and creepy, and it's so mean, but in the best way. Do you find in general the show to be mean, or because I, I think of the show as being mean, but always like wickedly mean? Like it's not the meanness is not it's sort of weightless. Is this an episode? Because I remember this being one of like the true scary episodes in the show, right? Um, does this episode is it like real meanness to you, or is it that sort of crypt like? come up in its meanness, you know, like bad people have horrible things happen to them meanness. Yeah, as a child, it just seemed like a cruel, scary, mean, terrible thing that I loved and hoped that they would rerun a lot. Uh, as an That's adult, oh, it- John Cribbs, a cruel, terrible, <laughs> scary thing that I love. That's how I describe him to anyone who will listen. As an adult. Aw. <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's it's a delicious comeuppance uh, seeing it now. And I, I think that was part of the charm because even the episodes that did tend to be a little more cynical and mean, that's what the Crypt Keeper was there for. He was probably wearing a cute little outfit and he'll he'll walk you into it and he'll walk you out of there, throw a few jokes at you and it, it's great. Um, so yeah, this one just... Uh, I obviously I'm 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 brave now, guys. I'm cool. I'm not scared by this episode as I used to be, but it it still gets to you. It's just and whoever uh, was the location scout and the set dressers in the episode. I hope they were paid so well because man, is it a good looking episode. Yeah, and they this is the only one they got Peter Medic to come direct too, which is significant. When you think of him as the director of the ruling class and the changeling, yes. less, less so when you think of him as the director of these two, but still. No, it's always the changeling for me. Oh, yeah, of course. I, it's no, weird. Like, I always think of him as the craze, is the first thing that pops into my head every time. So Romeo is bleeding. That's a good one. <laughs> Romeo is bleeding has its <laughs> virtues. I'm not going to sit here and badmouth Romeo is bleeding. John, were you aware that this episode aired back-to-back -back with Stephanie's first choice, Showdown, that they was July 25th, 92, and then August 1st, 92. Oh, do think, what do you think that says psychologically about her? I think it says... Don't weigh in too much, because I have another twist connected to that. Oh, Ooh, shit. Okay, okay. I'll back up on that. <laughs> We're backing I'll just, down. I'll just say about the meanness factor, though. I think that 
Crypt managed to like borrow something from Twilight Zone, which is that they present these like a despicable person, like an absolute grade A douchebag. But the the magic trick was that like you they put him in such a horrible situation, like in this one, where you have to sympathize with them because they're just they're des- they become desperate and they want to escape and they want to atone, and it's too late, you know. And you have that kind of psychological uh, appreciation of what they're going for. So this is a good episode for that as well. Plus, Robert Patrick has, is also thrown in there. So fantastic cast all around. And uh, I'm, I'm mainly familiar with this episode as a Joan Severance completist. Is mainly the context. I figured. I figured. That's why I thought it was important to bring it up. It's no Black Scorpion too, but it's pretty good. Um, That's why but, John told me to do this one. We did your 13th birthday and Joan Severance. <laughs> so hopefully we'll hit all the touchstones in your life. I, you're halfway there. Those are the only two <laughs> four touchstones in my life. I'm going to throw Chris another bone by bringing up my next pick, which I know is his favorite episode or one of them, Cutting Cards. Oh, yes. Directed I, by the great Walter oh. Hill. Yes, for, this is this is probably my favorite episode of the ones I've seen. It's definitely up there for me. It's I consider it one of Walter Hill's best movies, which is saying something. You know, like I put it up there with at least his '90s work as you know being of cinema quality. Um, but what we got is we got Lance Henriksen. Uh, always great to throw Lance Henriksen into anything you're doing, and Kevin Teige, who I think most people probably know from Lost. Uh, and, and other TV stuff, but they're two gamblers, old rivals who meet in the desert uh, casino, and they just try to keep one up each other until they literally have mutilated themselves. To, so they that's start pretty like much the whole episode. And hands and limbs, correct? Right, exactly. <clears throat> and it just the stakes go up and up and up to absurd to absurd levels. And it's so much fun watching these two guys, you know, try to one up each other by literally destroying themselves. It's, uh, I mean, obviously, I think there's like a big picture sort of thing here that you could take from this. Um, but, but I think what it is is it's just enjoyment watching these two actors go at it, and and just it's again, it's a funny episode that's also just so gruesome and not afraid to be completely gory. And it's a great um, looking just, episode so too. This is an episode Absolutely. that really has an amazing use of like neons and the, the like sort of gross parking lots and everything. It's, it's a phenomenal episode to look at. Also, incidentally, yesterday when I was chatting with Marcus Penn of Penland Empire and Zebras America about this episode, he said this is his favorite, that's his favorite episode of Tales from the Crypt as well. Oh, there you go. There you go. Case closed. So is even this, if Stephanie hates it, it doesn't matter. That's three against one. Is this another one that you think is just wow. okay? No, I'm looking at my poster, Streets of Fire, right now. I, I'm in, I'm in the cool kid club finally. No, it's it's a lot of people's favorite episode, uh, for a great reason. It's it's wonderful, and I think it's an episode that really shows how much Tales from the Crypt excelled in casting. Uh, I don't. It makes me wonder if they had any time for audition or not auditions, but uh, just. Um, preparation with the actors ahead of time because there's so much easy chemistry and a lot of times they would bring back actors who had worked together before um, 
but uh, it's just uh, it's, it's just it's mainly just these two guys and it's wonderful yeah i guess walter hill probably brought hendrickson over from johnny handsome because they had just done that film together um but yeah you can definitely tell that they have that kind of chemistry speaking of casting stephanie who's the one actor to you that it feels like should have been on tales from the crypt but wasn't christopher lover Crispin Glover, oh my God, that would have been amazing. To let him direct and write an episode too would have been incredible. Oh, wow, yeah, let's go out there. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, you know, you know why it wasn't, Crispin Glover wasn't allowed on the show because of Zemeckis, right? They were feuding at that Exactly, time. yeah, Absolutely. the bad blood there. That explains that. My choice, without a doubt, six actors from Total Recall appeared on Crypt. Six of them. No Ronnie Cox, are you kidding, show? Come on. That's very surprising. <laughs> the great corporate douchebag Ronnie Cox from the two Paul Verhoeven movies. Uh, yeah. You gotta get Dick Jones oh, into man. the series. I mean, come on. What, what I agree you? with you. Somebody else I've heard you mention before, Gina Gershon, seems like she would have been perfect for the <sighs> She would. Well, she did do the radio show, it turns out. So. Oh, so you're not counting her? Because her? No, no, I definitely count her. Yeah, she should have been on the, the show itself. Just illustrates how right you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's, I mainly associate her with uh, the Andy Warhol directed Cars music video. Have you guys ever seen that, that she stars in? <laughs> She's like eating little pieces of candy that spell out cars on her tongue. Classic. What song was it? God, I don't remember. I went to like a, a screening. It was like music videos curated by um, Tim Gordon. And it was all this stuff I had never seen before. She was there, had nothing to say about any of them. She's a very quiet person. So, Stephanie, what's your next choice for this? Moving into number three, is this where we get to, the, to some kind of a twist where you start to set up a reversal later on that you actually hate Tales from the Crypt? You're doing this. Oh, thanks for ruining it. I know we said spoilers were fine, but goodness, I mean, that's all I had in my pocket. Ugh, okay, no. But I, I will reveal the twist now because I'm not an expert at it, like the Crypt Keeper. So. Yes. My next one is What's Cooking, which aired right before the new arrival, which aired right before Showdown. Wow. Nice. And when I realized that, I, I don't know. Did Fox play season four the most, or is it Destiny? No, I don't know. There's, there's not a lot from season <laughs> four. Because season, I don't know, what am I saying? Like, I'm some goddamn expert in what Fox was hearing. I'll say I, I was buying uh, into it. Well, I went through and studied the blah, blah, blah. So what is What's Cooking About? Take us through it. Can I just mutter too? Does that work? Sure. <laughs> can I get away with that's, that? That's Thunderbird's thing, lady. <laughs> no, you can do whatever you feel. Whatever you feel. Whatever. We're not fascists okay. here. Just do what. That's what good you to know. <laughs> okay. Well, this stars uh, Bess Armstrong from My Soul Called Life. Sorry, she was like my TV mom as a kid. And Christopher Reeve, my Superman, and they're an adorable couple who own a squid diner. And uh, what is a just, squid diner? Squid on a stick is what will put this place on the map. 
Listen, people question the Colonel about KFC only serving chicken, and look where he is now. <laughs> so he he, he's in, he has ideals and ideas, but it's not working. No one wants a squid sandwich, and they're they're having financial problems with Meatloaf, who plays a guy named Chumley, and you have Meatloaf playing a guy named Chumley. This is the greatest show of all time. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was the laughter of agreement. We didn't mean to throw you off. <laughs> um, and uh, we have uh, Judd Nelson, who I love, and he's so delicious in this, and he decides... I don't, his motivation is so interesting, his character, because he's kind of moving in on the wife, but he kind of has a uh, get-rich-quick scheme, and he's one of those classic Shameless uh, Tales characters where he's like, yeah, I can murder. Yeah, let's cook these people and eat them, which is exactly what happens. He brings the mysterious meat, which turns out to be meatloaf because this show is not subtle, and I appreciate that about it. And suddenly there's sensation, and you know, there's backstabbing and trickery and blackmail, and you see Superman eat some human flesh, and it has this wonderful sense of humor. But it's really gory and nasty, too. But it's also about a really strong marriage, which I always appreciate. Um, so and a collection completed the opposite of John Cribbs. John hates this episode because it's a nice marriage, is what he told me earlier. <laughs> I only want unhappy marriages on this show, damn it. It's just most realistic. <laughs> Yeah, I think this might be the most successful one to me personally that is genuinely really funny and absurd to me, but also like, ew. <laughs> and unlike it's a, just lot of it, that guy. a lot of Crypt episodes, it's not directed like by a big name director or a horror director. It's Gilbert Adler, who was like a Crypt producer who um, only, I think the only feature film he did was Bordello of Blood. Am I getting that right? Either of you, card-carrying <laughs> cryptologists. I know what the did, pronunciation. He <laughs> <laughs> did a Freddy's of... nightmares. It all ties together, guys. Come on. Get with it, Funderburg. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely with it. You get with it. <laughs> you know one one thing about this episode is one um, thing. <laughs> Judd Nelson's character. I'm like, who is he? He's like this homeless guy like a well-dressed homeless guy who's just hanging out in front of the timer uh he's the <laughs> devil ever heard of him a well-dressed homeless guy but i i definitely appreciated i i did appreciate the happy marriage in this because you're you're ready right for like the wife to end up being like next on the menu and uh the twist in this one is that they get the you know they get the better of of nelson in the end and it's like so we've just been watching these guys serve human meat to their uh, their customers the entire time, but we love them and we're we're with them, you know, because they are such an adorable couple. And only Christopher Reeve, I think, can get away with that kind of adorability. This is, this is an episode too. I want to ask both of you before John, you jump into your third one that we should mention about the show. Do you how what when is the time period that this stuff is set? Like what's what's your like what's your thoughts on the sort of ambiguousness of time in this show? Either of you, we'll whoever answers first gets to go. 
Well, Steph yeah. Stephanie had a great uh, thing that she said in her review of Corman's Calamity, where she said the indoor scenes feel like the fifties, and then the outdoor scenes feel like the nineties. <laughs> and I think that like sums it up perfectly because it seems like there was like this mild effort to like ha dress people up uh, like at the time that the comic book was out or claim that it was taking place in the fifties or the sixties. And there, but, but then you'll see like a neon sign or something, you know, that makes it very nineties. Just the attitude of the, the characters is obviously very nineties. So that's another thing that intrigues me. I don't know, Stephanie, what's your take on it? My theory is that, we were dealing with a lot of baby boomer filmmakers because I have a lot of nostalgia for the 1950s and that's when my parents were born. I wasn't around there, but I have a ton of nostalgia for it because when I was a kid, movies like matinee were coming out. So I have like this idealized version of what that was. So I, I really think you know, every generation of filmmaker, like now we have 80s and even 90s nostalgia going because those people are in their 30s and making films now. During Tales from the Crypt, you know, they're like, well, we grew up in the 50s. And it, especially when they're thinking back on the EC comics, I think it would just kind of either, I'm sure some of them did it on purpose and some of them, um, their subconscious just crammed it in there. I just wonder if there was some HBO exec though who was like, Yo, guys, don't make this two fifties. You know, <laughs> like we want to real. Yeah, it's not TV, modern. you know. Exactly. Right. Is well, it I feel like it's fifties to the extent it doesn't get in the way of the story or the budget. That's what I always feel like when I watch it. Is that like they're committed to the idea it's the fifties insofar as it doesn't get in their way is sort of the, the sensation I get while watching it. Yeah, it's an interesting blend. I, I enjoy it, though. I enjoy its kind of schizophrenic setting. One of the charms of it. And also because it is, you know, like Stephanie's saying, too, when you're both saying that it is so insistently 90s, an artifact now, you know, that it's such a, a 90s thing with Demi Moore and Schwarzenegger and that sort of thing. Uh, in it that it feels the, hi the height of their powers yes yes at their most star studded um it's true you can't escape the 90s of schwarzenegger at that era you know <laughs> yeah. it's inescapable it, it yeah. gets even more complicated when you have an episode that skips you know from one time period to another like the one i'm going to talk about now the ventriloquist dummy Oh. Oh, is it one of yours? Yep. I have alternates too, though. I beat you to one. I'm excited. Now we're on even <laughs> playing ground. Um, because this one starts in, you know, it's the Bobcat Goldway character's a kid, and he goes to see Don Rickles performing a ventriloquist act, and he is completely blown over. He loves it. He wants to, that's what he wants to do. He decides. And in that same night, there's a horrible fire and Don Rickles' career is ruined. Then we cut to grown-up Bobcat, and he finds Don Rickles, this, you know, uh, former shell of him, shell of his former self, and uh, and uh, tells him he wants him to help him become a ventriloquist. It's still his dream. He still wants to do it. And Rickles, of course, is reluctant. And I feel like I can't, I can't talk more about this episode. I'm not willing to give up the big spoiler because it's one that scared the shit out of me when I was a kid which was amazing because I've never found dummies or dolls scary. 
but this one found a way to make it scary. <laughs> you know, this one found a twist you did not see coming that was is brilliant and absurd and scary at the same time. And this is like the um, like Stephanie's first pick. This is another one directed by Richard Donner and written by Frank Darabout. So is that, are all of their episodes the best? Do you think, does, does a single director who returned to the show a lot or writer jump out to either of you guys as like, that guy is like the key, is the key, the quintessential tales from the crypt director or writer? I certainly think that someone like Dick Donner, you know, used his power it's it's cool that he decided i'm going to get don rickles you know a legend into this episode and i'm also going to cast bobcat goldweight who you know again it's like police academy guy to most people and put them in an episode together it's an inspired idea that we don't know if he's like the crypt director but he's certainly i think had some you know brought something to the table without a doubt yeah i don't know that there's just one i could say but richard donner dick donner you, you guys yeah, see me. I guess I'll go with that. <laughs> where did um, you pick that up? There's some commentary where they repeat the phrase Dick Donner one million times. Is it Goonies? See the Goonies That's, or Superman? I can't It's remember. where you pick. Oh, it's the Omen. They won't shut up about Dick Donner. It must be. Dick it. Like Dick Donner refuses to say it's cursed. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Good David Seltzer impression, by the way. <laughs> it's perfect. I've been working on it. I'm not afraid to admit it. I've heard a lot of bad ones, but that one was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That, that's an impression you run into a lot. Um, oh, I can't get away uh, from it. I'm, I'm personally a big fan of Terry Black. Yeah. Of the Black family who did Dead Heat. Uh, he only did three episodes, um, first season with Joey Pants, Dig That Caddy's Real Gone, then uh, like John mentioned, Corman's Calamity and The Re- Reluctant Vampire. And well, those are all really good episodes. Yeah, they are. And I think he, he got kind of the joyous part of horror and EC comics perfectly. So I think he's, he's like one of the low-key quieter heroes of the show. It's interesting because I think of Fred Decker with this show a lot because he scripted, I think, five episodes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, the show frequently sort of has the, the same tone as Fred Decker's movies, as Monster Squad and, um, oh God, the other really famous Night of the Creeps. And, but it's weird at the same time, I don't think of any of the episodes he wrote as like only Sandeep or in All Through the House as actually the best ones in the series. Um, so I don't know what that says about me to think it's quintessentially Fred Decker, but it's not that great. Who's, whose turn is it now? Who are we moving on to? Is it that you just got, is it back to you, John? No, no, oh, I just, just did a request. God damn it. Well, we just kind of co-did it, but yeah, but yeah, Stephanie stuff. He, yeah, you didn't get in depth in that at all, though. <laughs> okay, I told I didn't want to. I didn't want to t- talk about what the big twist is. My the mainly the thing is what the way reason it works is because Don Rickles and Bobcat Goldwyn are incredible in it. Like they're just both perfect. Like I don't know, I I don't watch tons of TV. I don't know a lot of the celebrated TV shows, so I can't say it's the the equivalent of Marlon Brando in TV or whatever, but like, it seems to me like these performances like deserve awards of some kind. They're that good. 
So that and then a clever premise that pays off wonderfully that in a way that's both unsettling and funny at the same time. Like that's, that's the crypt formula right there for me. And, you know? and is it, are you a big fan of it just because you're a big Bobcat Goldthwait fan now that he's become a director? Does that add this something is probably to it? The f- I don't think so. I think this is probably the first time I saw Bobcat where it wasn't like I had to feel guilty enjoying him you know like it's the first like non police academy or hot to trot type thing i saw him and i was like like yeah like oh yeah one crease oh yeah well one crease summer is great obviously but what about shakes the clown this this predates shakes the clown it must i think i I definitely saw it before shakes i definitely saw it before shakes the clown without a doubt um so so this i think was where my respect for bobcat began and then him going on and making you know several brilliant movies just enriched it yeah, as, as someone, I have a huge weakness for vaudeville and for gore and creature gore and oh, what a great marriage. I never saw, I never thought I would really see them. I I figured Frank Helen Lauder would be the closest I would ever get to that. Oh, so this episode is a comparison. treasure. That's a great comparison. This is so Helen Lauder, absolutely. The twist is very Hennelotter-esque, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that tiny surrogate thing that, you know, preys on you spoil regular it, people. I'm, 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 I'm traipsing around a little bit. I'm kind of <laughs> around the corner here. Can I ask you a quick question? What are you saying is traipsing the right word? Sorry. Go. <laughs> yeah. So you were, you were afraid of it, right? Yeah, when you were younger. I, I was definitely unsettled for sure. Yeah. Was it just at the ending or was him wisecracking? Did that affect it at all for you? Were you like, oh, I, I like this guy. Then, whoa, too far, little guy. Come on. <laughs> uh, it definitely was both. Yeah. It was okay. the, the, the grossness of the idea and also, yeah, his, hey, a knucklehead type <laughs> attitude. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so it's a t- it's a tiny little deformed guy on his hand. Everybody, okay. I'm spoiling it. He's the dummy. But the journey way. to it is worth it. Everybody, it don't is. take our word for it. Don't go throw that episode in and watch it. If you love Dick Donner, if you love Don Rickles, if you love Bobcat Goldweight, if you love Frank Darabout, if you love Ventriloquist Dummies, if you love Vaudeville, watch this episode. That's my advice. Stephanie, your next pick. Number four. Number okay, four. this this one surprised me that it made uh, my top list, especially since I just had one stolen from me. So it's an even bigger surprise. <laughs> but it is a little episode called Television Terror. Morton Downey Jr. Not familiar with that one. Morton Downey Jr. Oh. Could you get more '90s? Well, early '90s. I don't think you can. Not at all. He is essential early '90s. <laughs> so, I again, he was a little bit uh, before my time. I wasn't a toddler watching Morton Downey Jr. Thankfully, but because of that great documentary that came out recently, and um, if you're a horror fan, you probably saw clips throughout the years of him like attacking people who were for Fangoria, like these movies are destroying the fabric of America. And he, he didn't believe in any of it. He just really liked yelling at people. Or you saw him in um, Predator too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the, the Shanes and the Terry Blacks and every, let's just, it's a crazy family tales from the crypt. Um, so basically he's playing himself and he's 
playing a character called Horton Rivers, which is such a great fake name. And they're at a, a notorious murder house and they're going to do a kind of a live walk through and hopefully it'll be creepy and drum up some uh you know audiences hopefully it won't be another um al capone's vault thing i just love how stuck in time this is it even makes a reference to that um but it's it's, I think it's one of the shortest episodes, and it, it really does feel like you're going through a haunted house. Um, there's corpses, and you kind of feel like they're going to make it seem like, oh, he's the only one who can see everything. He's going crazy. It's like, nope, right away. Everyone knows everything is going wrong in this episode. And when, um, when I was doing research into who made it, the director is a stuntman pretty much and you can tell because this, there are a lot more stunts in this episode than there are in general in the show and they're awesome especially the last one featuring Morton Downey Jr. Um, and that's one of the things why I started writing about this show because you could just like get a stuntman who doesn't have a whole lot of directing credits a writer um, he did like the doors but not a whole lot and they can do what's it's just aggressively kind of scary like high adrenaline episode starring Morton Downey Jr. like that's <laughs> great you summed it up. I think that's exactly what I meant when I said, you know, you have this completely unlikable asshole, which of course was Morton Downey Jr.'s whole persona, uh, going into the situation, which becomes increasingly dangerous for him. And like, he's realizing that he's walked into something that he, you know, wasn't expecting, something that he cannot handle. And he's slowly beginning to fear for his life and, you know, kind of reevaluating his life as he's trying to escape just like such a, an essential crypt, crypt uh, formula, you know? So What was the word you were trying to invent there at first? I was trying to think of a good pun and it didn't work. I'm no crypt keeper. I can't do it. He makes it look so easy. I should have just had a list. The one that he, <laughs> the one I've heard him use more than once. It's not one of his best. It's he hopes he can get into the book of who's who. <laughs> I guess that's just that popular of publication that everyone's going <laughs> to love that pun every single time. You got to knock them with it every single episode. I don't think of this one personally as one of the greatest, my favorite episodes, but I think what you said about Downey being in it is just like so essential that that early 90s sleaziness that he personifies, you have to have him on the show. Yeah, it feels like a very essential episode in terms of like where else would this artwork exist you know except <laughs> in the context of tales from the crypt right it wouldn't work as an episode of monsters that's for sure what's monsters that was another horror anthology show from like the late 80s you never saw monsters i did not john you're outing me as a fake horror fan that i truly am <laughs> Well, I know you're a huge Goosebumps fan, though, so that's what's up. I am not. Let me be on the record. I've never seen an episode of Goosebumps either. Um, oh, sorry. I, Are you afraid of the dark? If you want to talk by May the 13th, the series, in the Cronenberg episode, I can do that, John. If you want to talk haunted Canadian relics, 
we can do that. But otherwise, I can't talk about anthology series. But you can. And what's your number four choice? My number four choice um, was was heisted from me by Stephanie Crawford. So I'm trying to think. I I want to just shout out Abracadaver for being an episode with a fantastic title. Mm-hmm. And a fun episode um, with uh, Bo Bridges um, getting revenge on uh, his brother, who, when I was a kid, I for years after seeing it as a kid, I I was positive it was Jeff Bridges playing the brother, that they had real brothers <laughs> on the show that they pulled a long riders, but it's not it's Tony Goldwyn, the bad guy from Ghosts. So I was wrong about that. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, my brain. I'm sure they get confused all the time. It's, it's <laughs> um, but I'm not going to talk about that. One. I'm just going to say I, I like that one. I'm going to talk about Toby Hooper's episode, mm. Dead Weight, mm. because it's definitely not. It's it's a little off model for, for Tales from the Crypt in terms of its tone and its lack of humor. It's a very dark episode, which I really appreciate. Obviously, if you bring in a big gun like Toby Hooper, you want him to do something that's a little... Uh, mainly uncomfortable and not really that funny but what he did was he brought in uh the great james remar to to star in the episode as a red-headed con a artist quiet, cool fame james That's remar, right. quiet, cool fame. of course quiet cool james remar comes into a situation like what in the bayou in uh new orleans something like that where he's no 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 it's, it's, it's like central america or something yes like, it, it, no it's it's like the caribbean Okay, it's like yes, because it's like got the yeah, new stuff. it's like it's, it's one of those like Haitian type. <laughs> I should have watched Haitian. it recently. To I can tell episode. it's really one of your favorites. I do you think like it's it Miami. Seems <laughs> <Same> humid. <laughs> it's one of my favorites because I can't literally can't watch it when the scene. I oh, can I even describe it? It's, it involves worms inside somebody's body. And it's so disgusting. I can't even. I, I can't even mention it for beyond that. But uh, um, no, Toby Hooper is amazing director. It's interesting. The series didn't really pull the, the the big masters of horror for the for them. I guess you know they'd all sort of had their own anthology shows. Romero had Tales from the Dark Side. Wes Craven worked on The Twilight Zone. Carpenter tried to launch Body Bags with Toby Hooper, which obviously became a feature instead of a series. Um, and they were, you know, more likely going to go for their Fred Deckers or their Tom Hollands. Um, so to bring Hooper on was like pretty notable, obviously. And this is the only one he did. Uh, and he cast Vanity for God's sake. It's another Morton Downey Jr. type. You got to do it. You got to put Vanity on Tales from the Crypt uh, before she goes Christian, you know, and, and, totally leaves her image behind. I mean, that's also something we haven't talked about much with this, where it, it's not only is it a, a delivery system for sort of gore and monster violence and that sort of thing, it's also like a purely sexy show as well. And holy shit, Vanity in this episode is ridiculously scorching hot. And I'm no love commenting on set, that sort of thing no, normally, but uh, it's really notable in this episode. I think that if you talk about this episode too, she is a just mind-meltingly uh, strong, uh, almost cartoonishly sexy presence in the film. <laughs> and uh, in a way that, you know, both 14-year-old and yeah. old, old Chris Funderburg 
remember. <laughs> it's it's etched into my memory forever. And uh, Remar ain't sweated either in this. Remar is not a good looking man. His <laughs> virtues are not being good looking. Although well, he is sweating fun. profusely in this episode. He is with his tasseled red hair. <laughs> Is this an episode? Mr. Remar, he does not speak for all of us. Stephanie Crawford, what are your thoughts on vanity? What are your thoughts on vanity? Do you think that Vanity 6 was better or that when they moved on to Apollonia, it, that was the better manifestation of that group? Um, I, I love Vanity. I'm a big Prince fan, but I do enjoy her film work, uh, especially in The Last Dragon, Never Too Young to Die. Those are my two favorites. Oh, 52 Pickup is amazing. Have you okay, seen... Okay, uh, you have your list, I have mine. Have you seen the one, what is it called? The island <laughs> one. What's the one where she's on the island and it's her fucking the gorilla the whole time? Oh, Tanya's yeah. On his island. Yeah. That's on John's list. He won't admit it. <laughs> 52 Pickup and Tanya's Island. I'm glad you had the bravery to mention it. No, there's a very... Clearly, I spend a lot of time most deviant things I can about vanity. Clearly, I'm on the record with that. Clearly. I don't think that's a joke. I, I think that's very clear. But thankfully, it's Toby Cooper. So you get that sexy scene, but then you have to live through a guy filled with worms. See, if, exactly. if yeah, he put any sexuality, so. even a hint of sexuality in his work, he makes you pay for it so hard. <laughs> of course. And I think maybe I'm also bigging this episode up a little bit because it's so much better than his Perversions of Science episode. <laughs> oh, God, which is the worst. <laughs> it's the absolute worst. It's Jason Lee and um, Jamie Kennedy, right? Yep. God, it's terrible. <laughs> this episode also has Whoopi Goldberg in it, right? And am I mistaken? Doesn't she come out and do a little bit with the Crypt Keeper, uh, like yeah, in the intro yeah. and outro? Is that she the old only... Schwarzenegger? Oh, but Schwarzenegger's not in his. She plays like a character. No, it opens oh, yeah, with no, him she... meeting with the Crypt Keeper. That's why she's an egot. <laughs> she she goes a full mile. That's right. <laughs> Did she ever direct That's an episode? That seems like the kind of person they would have brought in to direct an episode. She should have. That would have been great. She never did. She was too play busy playing Guinan. I don't know what that means, John. You know what that means. Don't lie to me. Playing oh, Jesus. Of course I know what it means. <laughs> what am I saying? Somebody dead else weight. take the reins. It's dead, dead air. Wait, Stephanie, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, middle ground on dead weight. Oh, uh, thumbs up. And it, it's funny, when we were talking about earlier, when we talk about mean episodes, this is one of the small handful. It's like, no, it, it wants to feel ugly and dirty and mean. Like, it, it would be weird, though, if you're like, oh, Toby Hooper, and then it was goofy or, you know, just didn't deliver. He, he delivers himself, absolutely. Yeah, it feels like kind of like a warped play directed by Toby Hooper because it's all one setting and it's just like characters like, well, I'm leaving now and then they disappear for a while and then they come back in and it's like definitely got this interesting kind of stylish flair to it that's bizarre. I don't even know how to describe it except Hooper-esque. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of Eaten Alive a little bit in that Oh, way. yes. Perfect. Yeah, the lighting scheme and everything. Very yeah. being trapped in like that same sort of it's all basically one location with a few characters sort of wandering in and out randomly. Yes. Yeah. Very much Lots so. Lots of drama on porches. Also a, a theme. Indeed. Indeed. 
<laughs> swampiness, a pervasive swampiness inside. And, then... and most of the characters dying. <laughs> Being horribly killed. Spoiler. We're down to number five, Stephanie. What do you got? So for number five, I will do my number one favorite, which is Undertaking Pallor. I was so surprised to see this one mentioned in your most recent post as your very favorite episode. I can't wait to hear you talk about this. Really? Yeah, yeah. It does have one of the worst titles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I'm like, oh, come on. You guys could have done better than that. But basically... Um, well, it's you also might... like, are you trying to make the phrase undertaking parlor scary? Isn't it already a scary thing? It just feels like... At any rate, sorry, go on. No, sometimes with my column, I'll overthink the titles a little bit. And I think whoever titled this one... Um, went through the exact same thing I did. Just like, no, I can make this word spookier. And then you end up with undertaking power. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's not directed by Richard Donner, but it's kind of the Goonies episode of the show. Uh, we have four friends and they're, they're just kids with their backward baseball caps and they like movies and hey we have a camera let's make our own horror movie i happen to know where an undertaker is sure every kid does let's sneak in there and film them well turns out um if it, if, if your undertaker is john glover he, he's doing some stuff some disgusting stuff um some aftermath stuff horror fans <laughs> I'm just, you know what? You're, I'm, you brought your column back, and it's so good. I think I'm just, I'm announcing my retirement right now. Oh, quite the opposite. I think I'm the one who should step down. No, no. I felt, you know, so I'm going to move on to perversions of science. <laughs> you can cover this, and I think it'll be great, and I think I'll be really happy. And I'm going to go straight to the movies. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Demon Knight will be the next write-up. Go to the radio. So... <laughs> Go to the radio play. So what, what is there, do you want to avoid spoilers? What further happens in this episode? What makes it your favorite? Is it just that it's Goonies, Monster Squad kind of feel? Or what is it that you You know, I guess so. But seeing it as a kid, most of the, there's not really kids in the show, which is good. That would be pushing it. That would get annoying. But I think they did pull it off in this one. And seeing it as a kid... Um, I think they found that kids actually like watching adults in most things because it's like, or teenagers, especially because it's like aspirational. And usually when they see other kids, they're like, eh, that kid seems like an idiot. I wouldn't talk that way. But I think with Tales from the Crypt, I was so attracted to it and it was so forbidden to me. Um, but I, I loved it too when I saw kids in it for some reason. Um, it made me feel welcome. Like they secretly knew I was watching and they were, it was like, they're whispering to me. It was okay that I was watching this. And the fact that the, the kids are really empowered. Um, it turns out there's a, like a horrible scheme to kill people prematurely, basically to keep the expensive funeral business going. And one of the boy's fathers uh, gets killed 
with his prescription getting messed with and it's like immediately like we're gonna take him down like uh, cops don't exist in this universe like the these kids are gonna get evidence they're gonna piece together a puzzle and um people are going to get their guts sucked out, which was amazing. I loved that as a kid. I, I had the most fun nightmares um, thinking about all that stuff getting sucked out. Um, well, I was a big fan of Erie, Indiana as a kid too. Oh, and, it, yes. and it was almost like an ultra gory Erie, Indiana to me. And watching it again, I, I was actually a little afraid to watch it because I was like, oh, I don't have that childhood shine anymore. But I, I just think it's really well made. It has a great sense of fun. It's spooky. Everyone, even the young actors, everyone really gets the tone down and um it just it feels like a full meal this is one i actually sought out because your write-up called it your favorite i hadn't seen it before i read you writing about it and i was very very pleased to see it it also it's funny that you mentioned it felt like it was speaking to you as a kid i was thinking about this show and when i asked you guys earlier who's the audience for this show i always feel like the tone of tales from the crypt is it's designed for like teenagers, like early teenagers, but giving them the impression that it's actually a show for adults, you know, that it's specifically a show that's trying to, that's for kids, teenagers, but making them feel like they're watching something forbidden, like exactly the experience you were talking about having with it. It feels like by design to me. It doesn't feel like these shows are, that, that these episodes are necessarily intended for like, I don't know, like they were trying to get 40-year-olds that have HBO so they can watch boxing. You know what I mean? It felt like speaking to kids uh, in some fundamental way to me, you know? That's interesting. I, I, could see, I see this one as being super off-model, I think is the reason that I set up surprised it's your favorite one. Uh, I mean, you just did a great job explaining why it is, but um, I don't think of, I guess I don't think of Tales from the Crypt as being aimed at kids even though it found that audience when it was uh, airing i think it's so, both, i think it's out of both sides of its mouth i feel like it's pretending to be for adults but knows it really appeals to kids like dc comics themselves that were yeah. supposed to be read by adults only but we all know that it was mainly teenagers consuming them right but like in the show itself i mean the the kind of kid you see is like Zelda Rubenstein's daughter. You know, it's not like your regular. Uh, I, I don't think a show has to start kids to be for. No, no, I, I know, I know. You're right, but um, it's interesting that this episode works so well because it doesn't play to the usual tropes that you know, Tales from the Crypt, uh, you know, came back to all, over and over again, uh, and also that it's sort of a found footage episode. You know, so much of it is through the cameras of these kids who are filming all this stuff and it's sort of an early proto found footage style that they're using in this episode. Yeah. I thought that was really well done. Almost like a rise of Leslie Vernon kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> but again, taking that like radical, a stylistic approach to an episode, um, you know, occasionally you have like something like Abracadaver, which so much of it is through the point of view of the, the, uh, the guy who thinks he's, he's, he's dead. He's a corpse or the, um, the Humphrey Bogart episode that Robert Zemeckis did, you know, where there's all these gimmicks of seeing, you know, the guy being Humphrey Bogart and seeing himself in the mirror. Um, beyond those, like, you know, you have like a very kind of, they didn't stray too far from the, the standard formula. So this one definitely sticks it out for that reason too. 
Don't you think, Chris? Sure. <laughs> I agree with your analysis, John, and I'd like for both of you to continue writing your columns so I can read both of your thoughts on these shows and be directed to episodes I haven't seen. That's my opinion. John, somehow we ended up with you as the one to list your final final episode instead of our, our guest. So what is your last pick? What is the other well, we're potential? Well, I was going to have a, a, a crypt-like twist at the end of this episode where I was going to make Stephanie tell us about another one she likes. So before that, I will say that uh, the most crypt, you know, the complete opposite of, you know. That you was know. so deft that whoever <laughs> you the twist, it was just like a crypt episode, John. Exactly like a crypt episode. Like this one that is the most crypt-like episode, Let the Punishment Fit the Crime from season six. Starring the great Catherine O'Hara as a uh, hotshot attorney who finds herself trapped in uh, a small town where she doesn't realize that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the punishments are much more severe than in the big city. She's only gotten a small traffic violation and uh, goes through this Kafkaesque hell of, you know, uh, first being sentenced to... Uh, being whipped and then finding out that she could be executed and it's just this whole thing where she her performance is the whole show her refusal to accept like the things that are happening around her and so set in her her ways that she can't creatively find a way out of it and so it just becomes worse and worse because she's refusing to accept this crazy surreal nightmare that she's going through um, and again, you know, that's the classic, you know, horrible person, you know, in over their head, can't figure out a way to get out of this, just keeps sinking further and further into the quicksand. Um, it's a great episode directed by uh, Russell Mulcahy, who I think is the secret, I wouldn't say he's like the quintessential crypt director, but he's kind of the secret weapon because he also directed a great episode called Split Second, which is uh, about a love triangle among lumberjacks, which has a classic EC Comics twist ending. Uh, he directed People Who Live in Brass Hearses, great title, uh, which is a showcase for Bill Paxton and Brad DeRiff. Uh, anyone who loves them would love that episode. And even managed to direct a good episode in the seventh season, which is famously uh, bereft of good episodes. So Mulcahy actually is a great uh, contributor to the series and uh, actually did a good perversions of science too. So, so that's, that's my last one. That's a good one that I would recommend to people. And now the twist. Can you pick one? Oh, did I mention the twist? Stephanie, can you, can you give us one last one to, to wrap Come us up? Come on. <laughs> I will say the twists I hate most are ones where I have to do more work. I'm not a fan. Isn't watching every episode of the show a lot of work? Is the twist that you hate Tales from the Crypt? Once again, <laughs> no, it's leading back. I Okay, the no, I I do love the show, but the twist is I'm a very lazy person and sometimes I wish I I didn't have to explain everything. About it. Well, this has been a perfect forum for meeting your needs of not having to talk about and explain tales from the crypt. I'm glad we asked you. Do you have, I just ask a quick question about the seventh season. I have not seen a single episode from it. It's the one that seems to all take place in Britain and be like British themed. 
right? It's episodes with Bob Hoskins and Ewan McGregor and Steve Coogan, Daniel Craig, people like that, different kinds of directors. Are there any in that season that are worth seeing other than the aforementioned Russell Mulcahy episode? Stephanie, can you pick one good one from the final beleaguered season of Tales from the Crypt, which also features the uh, animated Three Little Pigs with Bobcat Goldbait? Um, I think I'll go with um, John mentioning uh, people who live in brass hearses. I don't know how you can go wrong with Bill Paxton and Brad Dorif. But now it's not from season seven, though. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess you can mull on that. I also wanted to mention, because I've never seen it, there is a supersized episode directed by Robert Zemeckis called Yellow, and it stars Kirk Douglas and his son Eric Douglas, and it's sort of an extended... Uh, Paths of Glory homage. Is that one any good? Because that seems like something they tried to put a lot into, but I haven't seen it. and I've rarely ever heard it mentioned when people talk about the highlights of the series. Is it a real stinker? Is this what I'm getting at? Either one of you jump the fuck in right now. I'm tired of- No, I I think it's great. And I I think it is, I've heard it on a lot of people's favorites list. Oh, really? Yeah, in fact, I would have mentioned it as one of my favorites, but it does get brought up on a lot of... <laughs> I was um, like, well, I'm not going to do yellow because he's going to do yellow, and they don't want to talk I, about yellow all night. Exactly. All this yellow talk, jeez. I guess I'm it's like a whole like concert in here, huh? Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> Definitely only agreed to be on the show if, if we would not talk about yellow. <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, it's like any list where you're like, what? That's his favorite one? That's terrible. What? Undertaking Power, which is literally what you just said to Stephanie just now on this show? Is that what you're talking about? No, it's just surprising that some people really enjoy ones that are a little bit more bland and don't have cool stars and I don't know. Yeah, it's like any list. What is the single worst episode, John, that you can think of that just pops into your head that fails most miserably? (laughs) Off the top of my head. Is uh, it only Sin Deep, the first Howard Deutsch episode with Leah Thompson? (laughs) That's one of the kind of bland ones. I would say uh, the probably the worst one I've seen is Three's a Crowd, which I, it pains me to say because it's directed by David Burton Morris, who made Patty Rocks, which I'm a big fan of. But uh, it's just a, just a clunker. It's just nothing interesting happens, and it's kind of mean-spirited in a way that isn't fun. I don't want to be negative, though. I want to end on something negative. Yeah, what the let's go back. Let's go back to Yellow. Well, I'm saying let's. this was all to give Stephanie time to think of another wild card that she wanted to talk oh, about. Oh, I have it. It's top billing. Yeah. Great one. Acting! <laughs> Acting! It's the one with John Lovitz um, as an actor, which is great. And uh, it has John Aston and uh, I keep saying, like, it's everything I love in a Tales from the Crypt episode, but it is. It's gory as hell. It builds the tension really well, but it, it's nuts. And um, it's got Bruce Box Lightning. It has Bruce Box Lightning. So, <laughs> Wait, uh, it's great. Sells itself. I will say, I'm surprised that neither of you guys mentioned if, if I had to pick my favorite episode, and that I think is one of the really unforgettable ones, is Carry on Death, the Kyle McLaughlin, uh, where he's the, the criminal who ends up handcuffed to the state trooper. So that, that, that almost been... made mine. Well, Stephanie yeah. did mention it in passing. Yes, mentioned in passing. But to me, that's one of the really, when I think of the show, it's like 
and all through the night, the killer Santa Claus one and, uh, and carry on death are the two that really stand out in my mind as being like emblematic of what the series was. John, do you have any, any more thoughts anywhere else you want to take the conversation? Uh, well, yes, I, w- I would like to take the conversation somewhere. Um, somewhere to say that uh, one thing I love about Stephanie's uh, series is that beyond going, you know, beyond her own personal opinions, which are always fun to read, it's just, it really goes into the, the kind of time and place of these, this show and the people involved. And, and obviously, if you're a horror fan, you're going to appreciate the horror angle on these, you know, talking about, you know, Terry Black and Fred Decker. And I... I, I really hope one day somebody writes like the ultimate book on the series Tales from the Crypt. And I hope it's, I hope it's Stephanie Crawford. I know that there is like, there is a book existing out there that came out in like 1997. I, I've never read it. I don't know if it's really in depth. Do you know about that one at all, Stephanie? It's called like the official archives. Yeah. I think I checked out from the library a couple of years ago and I, I remember enjoying it. Any good? Is it like, does it have good insight into the series, the production, or is it kind of like I a mean, fan? no. And nope. I think I think we should write the definitive guide. You don't um, want to work with John. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. No, I don't want to work. But he seems to have a good well, work ethic. A really bad, I really like really his column humor. and his writing style. So, John, hey. <sighs> eh? Once you put it out there, it's going to be like, Tales <laughs> from the Crypt, you can't go back, can't get out of the house. Now you got to do it. I'm sure John would be up for that. I did not mean to step all over your <laughs> earnest... <laughs> complimenting of each other's work there in order to insult John's work ethic. For no is, it, is, it, is it Ernest or is it Stephanie telling us she didn't have her five episodes prepared? I don't know. I don't know anymore. <laughs> You're getting out dry sarcasm on this episode, John. You got us all twisted around. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed yourself uh, as much as we enjoyed talking to you. I did. It, it was a lot of fun just to be able to talk about the show. Um, yeah, thank you so much for thinking of me and for the very nice comments. I'm a big fan of the website. I'm a little intimidated by it, but you both are very welcoming. It was a lot of fun. Do you have anything coming up that you want to push or promote? Anything you want to say? I will say no. first, everyone listen to the screencast. Stephanie Crawford. <laughs> yes. And read her columns at Dread Central and listen to Just the Discs, where it is my belief that she should be co-host of that show. With, not with Brian, but with Raven. I think that Just the Discs should be seated full-time to <sighs> Stephanie and Raven. I cannot convince her that I'm cool enough to do a show with her yet, but that is the goal. That's the dream. Raven's pretty tough to work with, I would imagine. <laughs> Very particular. All geniuses are. Okay. It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, Tales from the Crypt. Um, will there ever be anything like it again? Who knows? Stephanie Crawford, <laughs> thank you so much. Wow, what a profound ending. <laughs> we really worked this one out down to the brassest of tacks. Take that, M. Knight. Thank you so much for coming on again. Yeah, screw you, M. Knight. Keep your hands off of our show. This was, this was a lot of fun, and I'm glad we could talk about the show with you. And I'm going to stop you, recording, John, unless you've got something to say. I have one more thing to say. Have a great time, everybody. Oh, Jesus. Thank you.